Hi, this is Ben Lola, back to the Bible Canada. How do I know I'll enter heaven on Judgment Day? Well, in this message from Dr. John Newfeld, we're studying what Jesus taught in Matthew chapter 7, verses 21 to 23, regarding an invitation to obedience, as we continue our final week of our series, The Greatest Sermon Ever Preached. Now let's go back to the Bible with Dr. John Newfeld. I'm reading Matthew 7, 21 to 23. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Gary Thomas wrote the following. Thinking about eternity helps us retrieve perspective. I'm reminded of this every year when I figure my taxes. During the year, I rejoice at the paychecks and extra income, and sometimes I flinch when I write out the tithe and offering. I do my best to be a joyful giver, but I confess it's not always easy, especially when there are other perceived needs and wants. At the end of the year, however, all of that changes. As I'm figuring my tax liability, I wince at every source of income and rejoice with every tithe and offering check. More income means more tax, but every offering and tithe means less tax. Everything is turned upside down. I suspect, he writes, that Judgment Day will be like that. Well, no doubt. On Judgment Day, many of the things that seem positive now, that is, those things that center on the love of this earth, are not positive then. Jesus ends the greatest sermon ever preached by speaking to us about the end of time when everything is turned upside down. And so today we're going to speak about the matter of Judgment Day. The image of Judgment Day is the image of the terrifying God who comes to judge the living and the dead. And that's a key theme in the Bible. And no one spoke of that more than Jesus. So it shouldn't surprise us that Jesus closes the end of his sermon by taking us to the end of the road of our lives and at the end of the history of this earth and places us into a time yet to come, the time of God's judgment, with the surprising news that many who are confident here will face an eternity of horror. It is his warning to those who are comfortable in the kingdoms of this world. And the picture in verses 21 to 23 is a picture that's very similar to that found later in Matthew 25. There Jesus speaks of his own coming in his glory surrounded by the angels, and there he takes his place on his glorious throne, and as he sits, he separates out all humanity in the same way that a shepherd will separate the sheep from the goats, his people on the right, and those who are not his people, that is the damned, on the left. I'm reading Matthew 25, 41 to 46. Then he will say to those on his left, Depart from me, you cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry, and you gave me no food. I was thirsty, and you gave me no drink. I was a stranger, and you did not welcome me. Naked, and you did not clothe me. Sick and in prison, and you did not visit me. Then they will also answer, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty, or a stranger, or naked, or sick, or in prison, and did not minister to you? Then he will answer them, saying, Truly I say to you, as you did not do it to one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. And these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. It's easy to see how similar this picture is to that of Matthew seven twenty-one to 23. 
In both pictures, we have the shock of a great number of people who simply assumed that the eternal kingdom of heaven awaited them after this life. And in both cases, to their dismay, they find out that they were never a part of that kingdom. They did not act as citizens of the kingdom in this life, and they have no part of it when the consummation of all things comes about. But in the second account, I mean the one on Matthew 25, Jesus adds an element. There he speaks about eternal punishment and eternal life. The two eternals are placed as they are so that we have a clear picture that if one is eternal, well then, so is the other. It makes absolutely no grammatical sense to say, as some do, that Jesus offers unending eternal rewards, but that hell is of only a limited duration. No, no. If the life that he has promised is eternal, then the punishment must also be eternal. In both cases, in life or in punishment, the duration of time is unending never ceasing, always enduring, not reaching a conclusion, but continuing on and on forever and ever. An endless, undying sequence of moments that will never end. And it's precisely this that is at stake. The Sermon on the Mount is not given as a virtuous and better way to live, a way that will make this culture better and an ethic that will improve our lot in this life. It is given in utmost earnestness, There stands before the human race the very real prospect that our earthly death does not end our existence. All human beings will continue to consciously exist eternally. To belong to the kingdom of this earth is to belong to the kingdom of the eternally damned. It is as serious as that. The gravity of his news is stunning and should make us pay attention to every word spoken. The arrival of the kingdom of heaven in the person of Jesus is the good news. A kingdom has arrived among the company of the damned, a kingdom that promises eternal bliss, a kingdom that offers life. Jesus is making an offer to those who travel on the roadway to an unspeakable horror. Consider your path, and consider that your pathway is the pathway of the lawless. Get off the path and come to me. You know, sometimes the question is asked, who are these people who are so shocked that they have been excluded from the kingdom of heaven, and when does this final damnation take place? Well, let's answer the second question first. That is, when does this event of final damnation take place? According to Jesus and the rest of the New Testament, the judgment happens in stages. Just like the righteous dead, the unrighteous dead are still alive after their physical death. Physical death is the tearing apart of the body from the spirit, so even while the body dies, the spirit continues to live. It is conscious. And this conscious spirit awaits an event yet to come, the resurrection of the body. In Luke 16, Jesus told the story of a rich man and a poor man named Lazarus, who both died. Lazarus went to heaven, and and the rich man immediately went to hell. See, the point is that it was immediate. There in torment, the once rich man begs that someone will be sent to tell his brothers about this torment on the other side. He's not only in personal agony, his agony extends to the fate of his family and to the ones he loved. Perhaps he's influenced their lives, and the gravity of that is stupefying. He wants them to be warned. But we notice in that account that Lazarus' brothers are still carrying out their lives as normal during their earthly life. 
They are a part of the kingdom of the earth, and they, like the rich man and like Lazarus, the poor beggar before them, are traveling down a road toward their eternal destiny. Before them, at the very point of death, awaits endless bliss or endless horror. So from that, we learn that upon death, people go immediately into either heaven or hell. See, many Bible teachers call this the intermediate stage. Now, many of us are quite familiar about talking of this in regards to the righteous dead, those who have died in Christ and are alive and conscious and waiting their final resurrection of their bodies. But from Jesus, we learn that the converse is also true. The citizens of the kingdoms of this earth also die and are conscious in torment, also awaiting the resurrection of their bodies. When Christ returns, or as Jesus puts it, when the Son of Man returns in his glory, surrounded by his holy angels, there is a physical bodily resurrection. The book of Revelation speaks of the first resurrection, which is the resurrection of the righteous dead. They receive their new bodies and are welcomed bodily into eternal dwellings. But there is a second resurrection, the resurrection of the unrighteous dead, in which the dead are then formally judged according to their works. This in contrast to the righteous dead who are judged according to not their works, but amazingly they are judged by the works of Christ. Christ's righteous life and his perfect sacrifice on the cross is what counts for them. That is, they have placed their trust in Christ and not in themselves. After all, they always knew they were poor in spirit. They had nothing to commend themselves, and therefore, their hope lay in the one who lived and who died for them. It is this resurrection of the body at the end of time, followed by the great judgment seat that Jesus refers to in his sermon. It is at this time that some, those that belong to the second resurrection, that is, the resurrection unto damnation, will hear, I was hungry and you gave me nothing to eat. See, this judgment is happening after many of these people have already been languishing in hell, now to be formally and eternally sentenced. And many of them are asking, how is such a thing even possible? These people had called Jesus Lord, and they had prophesied in his name, and they had even cast out demons. They shouldn't be there. Well, there's so much more to discuss here. As we begin to unpack Jesus' words in this passage, we're faced with a very stark reality that every single human being has to face Judgment Day. The teaching of Jesus brings us to this realization in a very sobering way. In a sense, everything he has been teaching to this point comes down to this, the eternal fate of all people. For what we choose in this life determines whether we'll find life or death in eternity. So who exactly are these individuals that Jesus is talking about here? The ones that he never knew. We'll find out right after the break. Discover the land of ancient Greece with us this 2017. That's right, Back to the Bible Canada and Laugh Again introduce the very first New Testament Greece by land and by sea tour. You can visit many historic sites representing the places where Paul took the gospel of Jesus Christ. Every day, hear Dr. John Newfeld teaching from God's Word, messages of encouragement from Phil Calloway of Laugh Again, and worship with the Weebs. We're limited to only 80 guests, so register today to get your spot. 
Visit backtothebible.ca for more information or call us at 1-800-663-2425. Now let's go back to the Bible with Dr. John Newfeld. Matthew 7, 21-23 demands we answer a question as to the identity of some of those who are damned at the Last Judgment. Who are these people that Christ describes as surprised by their fate? We can be quite certain that these people thought they were citizens of Christ's kingdom or they were followers of Jesus, but upon death, they found themselves in the place of torment and now they stand before the judgment confused and afraid and desperate. They say, Lord, calling Jesus Lord. They can't begin to fathom how they ended in such a state. We have called you Lord, they say, but from what follows, it's clear that they never knew what that title meant. But they say, Lord, we don't understand why we're here, and they are in despair. Why have we come to this place? While we were alive, we did miracles, and we cast out demons, and we preached great sermons, and now, after all we've done, we're here? Why? And the reply of Jesus needs to be understood. The grammar of the Greek suggests Jesus as saying, not just, I never knew you, but never for a single moment have I ever known you. While you were doing all these things, I never acknowledged you were mine. I always regarded you from the very beginning as my enemies. You may have prophesied in my name, but you were always false prophets. You were false to me. You know, this leads many Bible teachers to ask a most serious question, a question that each one of us should be very interested in. What did these people actually do to make them think that they had belonged to Christ? And how is it possible for them to do miracles and even cast out demons, which they were doing in the name of Christ and still had not belonged to Christ? There's no greater question that should be answered. How is it possible to call Jesus Lord, to prophesy in his name and cast out demons and do miracles, and all the while never belonging to his kingdom? Now, there are several possibilities as to who these people are. Let me suggest four of them. First, it is possible that they relied on Satan to do miracles, uh, just like the magicians in Egypt who opposed Moses, or like Simon the sorcerer. And In that case, then it seems likely that they were inwardly committed to the evil one, while outwardly they pretended to be loyal to Jesus. But that seems unlikely because the people Jesus describes here are genuinely surprised at the judgment. It would seem to me that if they had relied on Satan, they would know that they would be united with him in eternity and not with Christ. Well, second, another possibility is that they relied on the power of others, like the seven sons of Sceva mentioned in Acts 19, who attempted to cast out demons in the name of the Jesus whom Paul preaches. They knew of Christ's power and tried to harness it. But they never belonged to Christ. Perhaps they had limited success in some way, but they were always pretenders. Well, third, it is possible that they were fakes, so that there were no miracles going on at all, but they used fraud and sleight of hand and manipulated others to believe that miracles were indeed going on. You know, such is the case today with, with a number of false teachers who will hold miracle services, and when independent research is done, they are found to be fraudulent from front to back. 
You know, whole ministries have been built on the miraculous, even dramatic videos of people getting out of wheelchairs. But when medical studies are done, it either shows that all of this was a fake or that they weren't healed at all, but went back to the wheelchairs shortly after. And fourth, the final possibility is that God was indeed doing miracles because he is sovereign. But these people were never true believers. They thought that what constitutes a citizen of Christ's kingdom are things like miracles and prophecy and driving out demons, but they had no stomach for submission to Christ or for the ethical demands of his kingdom, their personal lives. And what they believed and taught was not in line with the teaching of Jesus or the rest of the New Testament. Forgiveness of enemies, turning one's back on lust and greed, resisting the seduction of pride, all these things made no difference in them at all. Well, we see these kind of things today. You know, there are televangelists with personal and private jets and magnificent wealth and troubled personal lives growing ever larger ministry and all the while looking so unlike the description Jesus gives in his sermon on who the subjects of his kingdom really are. You know, when he said, by their fruits you shall know them, he was asking us to see if they really do live and behave and and act like a child of his kingdom. And if I might say so, it is imperative for every believer not to believe that miracles are the signs of a follower of Jesus. But whatever the case, however it came about that they did miracles in Jesus' name while being disloyal to him, the point is, Miracles and driving out demons and prophesying and preaching or whatever else will not help on Judgment Day. But if not that, then what will? Well, let's read verse 21 again. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. You know, the immediate response that we might have to this is that this is legalism. But if you think about it for a moment, if you, if you stumble over this, that doing the will of the Father is what matters on Judgment Day, can you see that you really do need Jesus to teach you? Legalism is a charge that's constantly being used today in evangelical circles. And it's fascinating that the word itself is not used in the Bible or in Jesus or Paul or Peter. None of them ever charged anyone with legalism. See, what Paul did charge people with was works righteousness, which I'll get back to in a second. But in the mind of many false believers and false teachers, the demand to do the will of the Father is legalism. In other words, when Jesus said, you must do the will of the Father to enter into the kingdom of heaven, these people today will actually charge Jesus with legalism. No doubt Jesus will say to them, never at any time have I ever known you. So let me explain the biblical relationship of faith to obedience. Let's begin by reading Romans chapter 1, verse 5, where Paul explains his calling and his message that he preaches. Speaking of Jesus and his call, he says, Through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among all the nations. You know, in Paul's own words, the result of his preaching is to bring people to the obedience of faith, or the obedience that comes out of, or is the result of faith. Let's say it again. The kind of faith that Paul preached was an obedience of faith, that is, a faith that gives rise to obedience. That's why he would say in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, 9 and 10, or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, 
nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And then he adds to the Corinthians, and that's what some of you were, but you were washed and you were sanctified and so forth. In other words, once you believed, you became obedient to the faith and you laid aside all of these things. No, you weren't perfect, but you repented of and renounced the values of the kingdoms of this world. Instead, you embraced in faith Jesus. In the words of Jesus, you laid aside the values of the kingdom of earth and entered into the kingdom of heaven. There is a kind of faith that is a saving faith, and it's the kind of faith that leads us to become followers of Jesus, who for his sake lay aside all the idols that once held us. So then let's be crystal clear. What actually matters on Judgment Day? Answer, it's not what we do for the kingdom. The king does not need people to accomplish things on his behalf, but the king demands we bow the knee and surrender our lives in submission to his loving and gracious hands. Yes, it is about faith, but it's about a certain kind of faith. It is the kind of faith that trusts him. See, there are many examples of this, but let me give at least one. Before I had faith in Christ, I worshiped money as an idol. But now I trust him with my money and in faith, allow him to direct how my money is used. See, that's one example. Others might give other examples. Someone might say, before I came to Christ, I worshiped sex and pleasure. But now in Christ, I surrender my sexual desire to him, asking him to direct it to be used only in the context of marriage of a man and a woman in a lifetime covenant of faithfulness and commitment. We could give so many more examples, but in every case, faith leads to an obedience of Christ. So it's not about how effective you and I are for the kingdom. It's rather about whether you will humble yourself and bow in submission to your king. There's so much more to be said. Join me tomorrow as we sum up Jesus' teaching on the Sermon on the Mount with a challenge upon which foundation you will build your life. What a powerful and relevant message from Jesus about the meaning of obedience as it relates to our faith in Him. Jesus' words are a great reminder and a warning for those who think that doing works even in His name are a guarantee of their salvation. As Dr. Neufeld has explained from this passage, what's important for eternity is that we have the right faith, the kind that leads to a life of obedience and submission to God. May these words continue to impact us and encourage us to walk closer with our Lord today. Well, our series on the Sermon on the Mount is almost done, but be sure to stay tuned for Dr. Neufeld's final message tomorrow as we learn about an invitation to eternity. Back to the Bible Canada, leading you forward in your walk with Jesus every day. Did you know that your support allows Canadians coast-to-coast to to continue hearing the life-changing message of God's Word? The majority of Canadians don't believe in the God of the Bible, and yet there is still a real hunger for truth that leads to hope and purpose. Recently, a listener wrote us to say, I've been listening to various series over the last couple of months and just wanted to share with you that I've been finding the messages insightful, interesting, and practical. 
I appreciate how Dr. Neufeld relates principles from the Bible to everyday life. Today, we're more committed than ever to offer audio Bible teaching resources for free to all Canadians. Would you help us place them in the hands of students, young people, husbands, wives, and countless others? To partner, visit backtothebible.ca or call us at 1-800-663-2425. That's 1-800-663-2425.